Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester, here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Woman, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And this is episode 58.5, where we're introducing you to our new contributors. Plus, we have a special segment from our winter intern, Kira McConnell. Hi, Kendra. This is going to be such a great episode. Yes, and this has been the works for a while now. Uh, we've been actively recording and different things for, I don't know, a month or two. And what did you say the idea of this came last year? Yeah, I think it was a year ago that we first started talking about this change and adding new contributors. So it's it's really exciting to finally see it come to pass. Yes, I, I'm really thrilled to chat with everyone. So for an overview of this episode, we are going to be talking about some changes happening in 2019, introducing you to our new contributors, and our intern Kira has created a segment, and not to give you any spoilers, but it's almost like what Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen and Frozen have in common. <laughs> All right, so to start us off, we're going to talk about some of the changes we have coming up in 2019. So about a year ago, Kendra and I started talking about the podcast in a state of the union sort of way because we're always looking for ways to bring new content to you all and kind of pinpoint, okay, what's working, what's not working, what are you all engaging with, what doesn't really seem to be resonating. And as part of that conversation, I brought up to Kendra the fact that I was interested in doing some more professional development coming up in the next coming year. So like going back to school and getting some more training on some different things. And so that kind of opened up this whole conversation for contributors. Yes. And we also wanted to bring on more diverse voices because Autumn and I, though we're two different people, we come from similar backgrounds and perspectives. And so we wanted to include more perspectives and backgrounds. This is, and this is about reading women, all women reading all women. And so that just seemed like a natural course for the podcast. Absolutely. And since we started the podcast in 2016, we have met so many amazing bookstagrammers and so many incredible women who are reviewing books and who are own voices reviewers, who are commenting on things from their different backgrounds and perspectives. And that's something that we think is really important and wanted to incorporate into this podcast as well. So that was a huge part of bringing on these new contributors. So what that means is that Each of our contributors has chosen a different month for the rest of the year that they're going to be reviewing books on that theme. And then I'm going to be continuing with Kendra doing the author interviews and the different interviews that we have throughout the year. Because that's another thing is when we first started this podcast, we were a biweekly podcast and now we're a weekly podcast, which is amazing. But I work full time as well. So it's a lot to juggle. <laughs> yeah, so I'm really excited and we will be on rotation with our contributors. And so we'll go in the order of Sachi, Jacqueline, Sumaya. And we have tried to incorporate different kind of like themed month, like Asian Pacific Islander month here in America is in May. So Sachi will be taking that one. We're doing Ramadan reading with Sumaya and trying to make sure that each of the contributors is talking about a topic they're very passionate about and hopefully also making that coincide with events happening in the world uh, during different parts of the year. Absolutely. And as you know from listening to this podcast, like I'm really interested in Southern Lit, and that's a topic that I've been reading about in the last couple of years, and Kendra is interested in <laughs> and then Kendra has her own topics. Like, how would you categorize it, Kendra? Appalachian lit's great. Appalachian lit, um, mm-hmm. but also like chronic illness and stuff like that. So this is just a way to kind of bring a few different perspectives into the mix. Yeah, um, we're very excited, and Sachi and I have actually already recorded our first episode, and we're really thrilled to be able to share that with you all. And I am just really amazed by how talented these women are, but also honored that they're willing to take their time and energy and to contribute to the podcast uh, because this is an all female volunteer effort. And it's really great to see what women can do when we work together. 
And also for this year, there are a lot of things on the business side that we're working on that we can't exactly talk about yet, but we are very busy behind the scenes trying to get a bunch of ducks in a row, as it were, and so I'm going to be helping with some of that as well, some of like the things going on behind the scenes to kind of keep those things moving along. I'm also going to be taking a bigger role in engaging with our patrons on our Patreon page. So if you want to learn more about that, there's a link on our website, or you can just send us a message and we can talk to you more about that. And I'm really excited about the direction that we're going, including more voices. And you know, the more content that you're listening to means more work on the back end for us. And we're very excited that this is happening, but it just means that we need to reshuffle some of our woman hours and where they're going. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It means more books more book reviews, and more great content because Kendra and I are only two people and can only read so much in a year. So so adding three more people means three times the books and three times the reviews. And so we're just like over the moon excited for everything that all these incredible women are bringing to this podcast. Yes, exactly. Well, that explains some of the changes that are becoming in 2019. But now I think it's time to meet these amazing women we keep talking about. So for our next segment, we have all of our contributors here with us. And first up is Samaya. So do you want to go ahead, Samaya, and talk about what you do on the Booktornet? I'm Samaya uh, at samaya.books on Bookstagram. I love reading books and I write about them on my Bookstagram and on my blog. I also write bookish articles for website. I previously worked as an editor and writer for a magazine in Jada. It's called Destination Jada. I recently moved to India from Saudi Arabia to focus on my master's in English literature. And then you also have an adorable fluffy cat like my Agnes named Gatsby, right? Yes, Gatsby. She is almost three years old. She's adorable. Um, I had to give her a bookish name because I love books so much and I admire the character of Gatsby. And she also has her own account on Instagram as well. Yeah, she's a bit of a celebrity and I think she really likes the attention. (laughs) We're all about the fur children here. Uh, (laughs) So we have asked all of our contributors to tell us a little bit about themselves and about some of the books that have inspired their take on literature uh, and their view on feminism. Uh, So Sumaya, what is the first book that you've picked for us today? So the book that stands out for me is uh, A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf. We studied it at university in my undergrad, and it completely changed my perspective about the way that I viewed women's struggle in the world, especially women who were intellectual, how they were limited by patriarchy uh, into certain roles that did not allow them to have the space or time to pursue their intellectual or creative abilities uh, and talents. So that's definitely one book that changed the way I saw feminism. And it also made me understand my own struggles as a young girl who wants to be a writer and, you know, who wants to pursue that creative spark that I feel sometimes. Obviously, I approve of your pick. Uh, Huge Virginia Woolf lover. Me too. (laughs) I love her. Yes. Yes, she is. She is really lovely. A Room of One's Own is definitely a classic, you know, a feminist classic. Um, It's a must read if you're trying to understand the historical perspectives. But the thing is that um, with feminism, in the way that I have read books and I have seen stories of women from the West and stories of women in the East, um, in South Asia and Middle East, like the, the women that I've met from my perspective from this part of the world, I feel that there is a gap in the way that feminism has evolved, you know, in these different parts of the world. In South Asia and the Middle East, uh, there's definitely progress, but there's progress in those parts where you have privilege. You you can understand the disparity when you look at the stories of women, you know, who are coming from uh, underprivileged backgrounds or just don't have the resources um, or the opportunities to really assert themselves and to get out of the patriarchal system that limits them. But this doesn't mean that women in the Middle East or South Asia are not in control of their narratives. Um, I think there is this image of women from this part of the world in the West uh, that's really fragile and that's weak and oppressed. But that's not true. Um, There are definitely fighters. There are definitely women in all sorts of fields that are working hard, that are doing a lot to move out of 
that oppression and who are really taking control of their lives. And you were telling us earlier about a short story collection that touches on all those topics. Yeah, so I've been looking into uh, feminism in South Asian literature, and one of the books that was constantly recommended is Lifting the Veil by Isma Chukhtai. It, it's a remarkable book. It was uh, it was a collection of short stories and a couple of essays, and it was a really remarkable read. What I liked about it is, is that it depicts the particularities of the female experience in a society like India uh, or Pakistan, where you have patriarchy as a social system. So when I when I read this book, one of the things that stood out to me is how the Indian Indian system of patriarchy and even the caste system actually it affects the way women experience their reality in society, like the rights they have, the things they're able to do, and even their relationships with men or their relationships with their own bodies. So it really looks at how society is constantly manipulating and molding these experiences for women. Well, I know her book has been sitting on my shelf for a long time, so I'm really excited to get into that and chat about that book with you. What are some of the topics that you would like to share with our listeners this year? Okay, so the the topics that I'll be exploring this year actually coincide with my visit to India. You know, being a reader in Saudi Arabia is a bit difficult, um, especially if you want to really explore a certain topic or an author, you know, or a genre. Like, you have limited books that are available. When I arrived in India, I realized that the publishing industry here is huge, um, and there are a lot of South Asian authors. There are a lot of uh, books that I didn't even know about, you know, despite having an internet connection <laughs> and despite being quite an explorer. So now that I'm here, I'm, I, I realize that this is my opportunity and my chance to explore South Asian literature and also Middle Eastern literature because books are way more available here than they were back home. So what I'll be contributing to the reading women are narratives that are set in South Asia and the Middle East. So books by and about women. Uh, and I'm really excited about this because it's it's new for me and it will be new for the listeners and hopefully we'll learn a lot. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to these episodes that we have coming up. There are some great themes. Uh, one of the ones that you've been talking about is a topic about partition narratives. Yeah, so I'm. This is actually one of the uh, themes that I'm really looking forward to exploring. Uh, you know, books that are inspired by the partition of India and Pakistan. It's a it's a brutal part of history in South Asia, and uh, the conflict actually continues in the form of communal politics even today. So my own family has gone through the partition, and I have families that are both in India and Pakistan. Uh, my grandfather, you know, he didn't meet his siblings for decades and you know eventually like they ended up never meeting again i want to better understand how the partition has affected people families and really how it was experienced by women you know because women's trauma is often unaddressed it's neglected um and it's taken for granted coming to india has made the subject more real because i'm seeing how it's uh, the partition affects the politics even today and i'm curious to see you know what where the where the stories are going, like what direction are the narratives headed in? Because a trauma like that is experienced through generations. So one of the books that I'll be starting with is Ice Candy Man by Babsi Sidwa. This book is at the top of all the lists uh, for partition narratives. Uh, I ordered it a couple of days ago and I'm waiting for it to arrive so I can dive right in. Well, that sounds like an amazing read and I feel like I need to jump on the bandwagon with that. But I'm very excited to go on this journey, you know, with you to learn more about the partition of India. Uh, I haven't read too many books about the topic, if, if any. So I feel like this would be a great exploration of literature, especially literature written by women. So we're going to talk about uh, partition narratives. Uh, what, what, what is another topic that uh, you're looking forward to talking about this year? Uh, so a couple of the other topics that I have in mind are Ramadan reading and dualities. Ramadan reading is basically going to be an exploration of books by and about Muslim women, uh, their narratives, modern and contemporary classic narratives by Muslim women. Um, dualities is basically a topic that has interested me because I grew up as the child of immigrants. The, that status of being an expatriate has affected me my entire life. 
So in dualities, I'm hoping to look at books set in the Middle East that have a cross-cultural narrative. Um, I think that's something that I would relate to a lot. I already have a couple of books in mind um, that I'm really looking forward to. And one of them is uh, My Past is a Foreign Country by Zeba Talkani. She uh, is, has a very similar background in the sense that she, she comes from an Indian family, but she grew up in Saudi Arabia. So the experience of being an immigrant in the Middle East is very different to what you would have elsewhere. Um, many countries don't even offer citizenships or you'd never really become a national. In Saudi Arabia, for example, you can't own property or businesses. So it really affects the way that you uh, you know, form the idea of home and the way that you form your own identity. So I'm hoping to explore these narratives to better understand my own position and to navigate what I am experiencing with regards to that. Well, it sounds like that we are going to have a great year with a lot of different topics to discuss. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it as well. Well, thank you, Samaya, for sharing some of your picks with us and telling us what you're excited to talk about on the podcast. And to you, our dear listeners, we'll be back to introduce you to our other two contributors after a word from our sponsor. This episode of Reading Women Podcast is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. Reading opens us up to a world of new people, places, and ideas to explore. And with Great Courses Plus, you have access to that and so much more. And we're big fans of Great Courses Plus. Um, They have an amazing database of lectures that are video lectures presented by experts who are not only knowledgeable about their subject, but they're also very passionate about their subjects, which is really awesome. Yes, and we're really thrilled that they have a lot of literature uh, courses on the Great Courses Plus streaming service. Uh, One of them is Great Utopian and Dystopian Works of Literature. And we are big fans of this course because one, it, it features so many women, first off, but also because it features the one and only Octavia Butler. There are a couple of lectures that feature Octavia Butler. One of them is Octavia Butler and the Utopian Alien. And the second one is Octavia Butler and Utopian Hybridity. And I really appreciated these two because one of them, it talks about how Octavia Butler doesn't fit perfectly into categories of utopian and dystopia, but it does interact with the feminist utopian renaissance of the 1970s and bringing that into a more complex shape. And so if you're a huge literary sci-fi fantasy nerd like myself, then this is definitely the course for you. Absolutely. And there are 24 different video lectures in this course. And... And this particular course is taught by Professor Pamela Bedore, and she is a highly accomplished woman who has who is a associate professor of English at the University of Connecticut, and so definitely want to check that out. So if you're interested in this course and learning more about literature or dystopian literature in particular, We've arranged for a special limited time offer for our listeners, which is an entire month of The Great Courses Plus for free. So you can enjoy great utopian and dystopian works of literature and so much more. So to get the special offer, sign up through our URL at thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash reading women. That is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash reading women. And we thank The Great Courses Plus for sponsoring this episode of the podcast, and all of that information will be linked in our show notes. Well, thank you, Samaya, for sharing your favorite picks with us. And Jacqueline, I think you're next on the list. Yeah, well, like Samaya, I'm not living in the country that I grew up in either, so... I am an Australian. The accent might give that away, but (laughs) I am currently living in Texas, and... I, in my outside reading world, I'm a construction lawyer and uh, within reading, I do a few different things. I have a, a booktube channel and I also review things on my Instagram and my blog and Twitter. So I've got a few different platforms that I talk about books on. Yeah. And that's actually how we met was on booktube. Yes, we did. So very prolific commenter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So for your uh, book or books that introduce you to feminism, uh, what have you picked for us today? Yeah, so one of my more recent picks that um, I guess really kind of cemented a lot of discussions that I'd had growing up about intersectional feminism. So it's Can We All Be Feminists? And it's edited by June Eric Udori. 
So what I found most interesting about this collection is that each of the contributors had a very different perspective in what they uh, had experienced with feminism in their own life. And the sort of central thread that ties them all together was how they first encountered feminism and this kind of realisation that it didn't fit with other parts of their life squarely. So there's a range of different uh, intersectional points that these essays touch on, and I thought it was such a huge range and just fascinating um, content. Uh, They cover things like the Black Lives Matter movement, um, Ireland's abortion referendum. So there's a good sort of range and uh, different countries covered. So I just found it a wonderful um, discussion about, you know, the different facets of feminism and it not being just one central narrative that um, everyone has to sort of connect with in the same way. I don't think I'm familiar with that title. Was it published here in the US recently? So it's a relatively new release, um, but I believe it's it's out from Penguin, so I would assume it's a widely available one. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. So like Samaya, um, I also have a second book that I wanted to talk about, and it's a another feminist text that was also published in September, incidentally, last year, and that's Womankind, and it's written by Catherine Fox and Kirsten Ferguson. Now, this one's actually really fascinating. It started as a social media project. So Kirsten Ferguson decided that she was sick of seeing the sort of vicious online abuse of women, and she decided to create this hashtag, this social media campaign called Hashtag Celebrating Women, And the idea was that she would profile two women from anywhere in the world, in every walk of life, every day for a year, and that each of the women would only answer four questions. So they would answer, um, how would you describe what it is you do without using a position title? What did you want to do when you were at school? What are three words to describe your life to date? And who do you hope to inspire and why? So they were very kind of meta questions in a sense. They really invited women to sort of put their own spin on the questions and the response she got was just incredible. Um, I think the statistics that they record in the book are that um, at the end of the year she'd celebrated 757 women from 37 different countries. So it was an absolute, yeah, it was a huge campaign and I think she covered both Twitter and Facebook Um, So she had a real kind of, you know, she had the full social media sort of circuit covered. So I think the, I have, this is a book that's on my TBR. I should also say I haven't had the chance to read it yet, but the book really builds on the momentum of this campaign and it looks at the kind of the background to that, like how women specifically use networks to succeed and, you know, how the strong connections between women in these networks are formed. So the campaign was really, and the book itself is just a celebration of diversity and community and feminism and, you know, how that all comes together in a positive way on social media, which is not exactly the most positive forum a lot of the time for women. So I think it's great that there's this sort of, you know, more optimistic outlook out there. Well, I will definitely have to make sure I check out that book. It really sounds amazing. So you've shared with us some of the books that have informed your feminism. What are some of the topics that you're looking forward to sharing with our listeners this year? Yeah, so I'm really excited to share um, some Australian books. I guess I have a an interest in reading stories from home, and at the moment they're a way that stops me being homesick while I'm living in the North America. So I'm putting a bit more of my time into looking at what's sort of coming out in Australia, and I'm hoping to share that with uh, more international readers. I know there's a lot of people that have started, you know, paying more attention to what's being released in Australia, so that's really great to see. And what are some common issues that are discussed in books by women writers from Australia? Oh, that's a good question. I think that they're all fairly diverse. I think there's not really one sort of central theme that comes out. But I know that one thing that um, I see a lot, particularly in um, books by Indigenous authors, is the relationship to land and history and uh, the recognition that it's an imperfect one and, you know, recognising the the harm that the colonial past has caused and, you know, how that also plays a part in, you know, feminist identity as well. Yeah, and I appreciate you saying that because that's something that 
I feel like was really impressed upon us when we read Terranelius by Claire D. Coleman. Uh, yes. Ob- obviously, great book. Um, I feel like Americans have some stereotypes in their mind of what Australia is. And so you have like the Sydney Opera House, but then you also have the Crocodile Dundee and all these different things. And the koalas. Oh, <laughs> yes, and the kangaroos. <laughs> but what are some misconceptions that you would like to set right uh, with some of the books that you're recommending? Oh, that's another good question. Um, I think Australia often gets sort of, I think a lot like the American South, a lot of Australians face stereotypes about not being maybe leaders or at the forefront of things. And that's that's really not the case. Um, there's some wonderful stories and nonfiction content coming out of Australia um, that, you know, I know that you've talked about on the Reading Women podcast as well, but um, we're hoping to look at more this year too. But um, yeah, I definitely think underestimating the the capacity for Australians to tell a great story or to um, put out really well-researched uh, non-fiction content um, is probably something that I'm hoping to correct if, if that is the, the conception, that's, the misconception that's out there. So another thing about um, Australian books that a lot of people probably underappreciate is that um, there's so much diversity within Australia. Australia is an extremely multicultural community and there's a very rich population of migrant voices coming through in our literature too. So, you know, nonfiction, fiction, there's, you know, an extreme diversity of voices. So that's one thing as well that I'm not sure people are always aware of. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. We already have a Australia theme planned in the works. Yes. And uh, really excited to share more of those books then. And we'll be talking about some of the issues around Australian literature more then. So Yes, I'm very much looking forward to it. Well, thank you, Jacqueline, for all of those amazing recommendations. And then our last contributor is Sachi. So Sachi, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yes. Um, so I'm Sachi. I go by the Instagram handle of Sachi Reads. Um, I'm mainly in the in the book world, just active on Instagram. I don't have a booktube or anything like Kendra and Jacqueline, but I love Instagram. Had it for a while personally. And then I think it was last July, I decided I had so many book posts on my personal Instagram that I was like, I'm just going to go ahead and uh, do a, a books a bookstagram, and really loved it. And my partner in crime on my Instagram is my little corgi Yuki. She's about nine months old now, and um, yeah, <laughs> she's growing up so fast. It's kind of scary, <laughs> but uh, she appears on a lot of my book review posts, and um, she loves being the star. People. People find the Instagram <laughs> and they get excited for the corgi and they kind of stick around for the book reviews. <laughs> At least that's what I say. Uh, people like jokingly message me that sometimes like, I'm here, I'm here for Yuki. And I'm like, okay, hopefully for the books too. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, corgis uh, kind of take over anything they appear on. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> She loves being the the star and the center of attention. So um, when I get my camera out and get my book out and walk to the front room where uh, she poses on a bench by the window, uh, she knows. She'll walk in. She'll follow me like, okay, I'm ready. Like, where are my treats? Um, <laughs> I'm going to post here. And she's she's kind of my, my little partner in crime when it comes to uh, in my Instagram. But I, I focus mainly on own voice writing. And I like to do the majority of my reading by women authors. A lot of my book picks that I have focus on that type of writing. And I try to provide reviews on stuff that's a little lesser known, but still pretty widely available. I I do get caught up in some of the Instagram kind of FOMO of like, I'm seeing this book everywhere. And I, I feel like I need to read it now. So I can be part of the conversation. But I also try to read a lot of either backlist or um, books that aren't as well known just to focus on something different. And I love Asian and Asian American titles since I'm half Japanese. So I try to provide a lot of content and titles for that as well. So that's a little bit about my uh, bookish reading life. I do read I read as a hobby. So I do I work full time in finance. And the way to unwind and decompress for me is reading. So I do that a lot on the nights and the weekends. And hopefully it's it's uh, helpful and useful for people uh, to see what kind of recommendations I have. So 
Well, we really love your recommendations, and you have some books to share with us today, right? Would you like to start with your first one? Yeah, sure. Um, so just for a little bit of background, I've always been a big reader, and a couple years ago, I really wanted to focus on it more, and so I started listening to more bookish podcasts for recommendations, and a lot of the suggestions that I heard were from female authors, and I would realized just from self-reflection that I wasn't reading a lot of women. I was kind of just mainly picking books that I saw on the front shelf at Barnes and Noble or books that were going to be made into movies. And I realized that I was mainly reading male authors. And as a woman, I, it's harder for me to relate to male authors and male protagonists sometimes. So it wasn't a specific book that really got me more into reading women. It was more just inspiration from hearing podcasts, wonderful podcasts, like the reading women. So it makes me excited that I can be a contributor because this podcast was so influential on the, the shaping of my reading life. But my first book that I want to talk about, mainly what some of the comments that I wanted to provide were just a personal goal for me in the last year has been to read more women of color. And the first book that really got me into that, you know, that change or paradigm shift of wanting to change my reading life was after reading Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng. And I, after reading Little Fires, I just felt so seen. I'd never felt like that about a book before. And It was mainly because the book takes place in Northeast Ohio. So it's pretty much exactly where I live. The um, city where the story takes place is really not far from where I live. It's only about uh, 40, 45 minutes away. And it was written by a Chinese American woman. And this meant so much to me (laughs) because in Northeast Ohio, it's it's a predominantly white area. And here was an example of a work by an Asian American like me telling a story of, you know, an interracial adoption story set kind of in, in the area that, that I grew up in. And I realized that, you know, stories like this exist that I can really relate to, um, not only as a woman, but as an Asian American. And her story resonated with me so much that I searched for other Asian and Asian American titles and just from Google searching and also from uh, from the Reading Women podcast, because it was on the, the list for best book of the year, I found Pachinko. And um, like many readers and probably many listeners of the podcast, I absolutely loved Pachinko so much. I'm kind of cheating because I'm already segueing into my second book. Um, but I learned so much just about Korea and as well as the Japanese occupation of Korea and realize that there's so many stories out there by women of color that are powerful and compelling and like beautifully written. And since reading those two novels, I've just dedicated myself to reading more books by women of color because um, their stories are just as important and need to be told. And me as a biracial woman, I feel like I can relate very closely to a lot of the themes from books written by women of color. And I've just read so many incredible books in the past year after kind of setting that personal goal for myself. And it's really changed my reading life, in my opinion, for the better. And I've been really happy and thankful for the experience. We are really excited to have you on the podcast, Sachi, and we appreciate your perspective on women of color authors. I know you've pointed us to a lot of amazing women this year, and you read a lot more YA, I think, than Autumn and I do. So I'm pretty excited to hear some of your recommendations in that area and uh, your focus on um, Asian and Asian American women writers. Is I, I feel like when I go to your Instagram page, it's just like this haven for amazing women writers that I just go like, Oh, that's lovely. I should check out that one. And, um, so I really enjoy your recommendations. So I'm really excited. We have some great things planned this year. Yes. Yeah. I'm very excited. I, there's a lot of really awesome titles from women of color coming and I'm really excited to read a lot of them. This is kind of nerdy. I have this very intense spreadsheet when it comes to tracking (laughs) my, my reading. It's my finance background coming out, but I was looking at my stats versus 2017 and 2018. So 2017 was the year I really focused on reading majority women. And then 2018 was my focus on uh, reading more women of color. And I was looking at my top 10 list because I always do just like a personal top 10. And when I went back and looked at my 2017 top 10, I just felt like that my 2018 list was just so much stronger and I just felt so much more passionately about the books. And I had a very tough time picking my top 10 for 2018. 
I did a post on it and there were probably another 10 books that really could have slid in and, and made it into the top 10. And I feel like that's a real testament to the fact that I focused on reading more women of color because there's some incredible stories out there. I think it's just people need to a find them and, you know, be open to reading them as well. So there's a, there's a wealth of really great storytelling out there for people. I love your top 10. I love seeing those. There's a lot of, you know, my favorites in there and I love seeing your reviews and there's a lot, there's few of them I haven't read this year. So I definitely have them on my list to pick up, but you and I have the first theme this year. Yes, we do. Would you like to tell them what we're going to be talking about in February? Um, The theme that we have because of Valentine's day being in February, we really wanted to talk about uh, complex relationships. And I think the The catchy title we came up with was All You Need Is Love um, based off the the song, but we wanted to focus on not only just, you know, uh, the traditional romance and love stories, but complex relationships and marriages and interactions between people that really, you know, are uh, relationship-driven stories. And so um, we're really excited about um, highlighting some books I think there'll still be some romance picks, but also if you really love kind of interwoven relationship stories, but maybe not necessarily read a lot of romance, we have some great titles that might really pique uh, listeners' interests to get some of that kind of storytelling in their reading life. Yeah, I feel like we were both in the same boat where we're not as familiar with romance, but we're making great efforts to try to enter into that scenes. I feel like I call them gateway books. They're like... (laughs) introductions to this genre that we know very little about, but we're, we're giving it a good go. And I feel like a lot of um, my friends who are readers are also in a similar spot trying to find books like that to just kind of ease them into different things. And I, I really like the books that we've picked for this month. So awesome. yeah, I think it's going to be a good month. But we've also asked a hardcore romance reader to come on and recommend some books as well. So she, for you guys who are already well versed with romance novels, she is here for you. It's one of my like personal goals is to read a little bit more romance this year. Cause I don't, I might've, I think picked up one last year when you mentioned before about me reading more YA last year was the first time I really picked up YA and I made it a personal goal. I picked a couple genres that I wanted to get more into. One was YA, another was poetry and more memoirs. And I think this year I want to read more romance and some queer fiction or LGBTQ fiction, as well as some short stories. I had intentions of reading more short stories uh, last year too, but ended up only picking all the names they used for God, which I loved. (laughs) Um, But I want to do more short story collections this year. So I'm really looking forward to some of the romance picks that we have for next month and hopefully picking those up. Well, Autumn is our resident short story fan. Uh, (laughs) So uh, I'm sure she can hook you up. (laughs) Yes, I love short stories. So I have plenty of recommendations for you. We'll have to talk about it later. Yes, you definitely, definitely will. All right, Sachi, the last question that we have for you is what are you looking forward to most coming on the Reading Women team? I think the main thing that I'm excited for and excited for the opportunity is um, just to be part of this incredible uh, group of, of women readers. I'm really excited. I've always loved the Reading Women podcast, probably my favorite podcast out there. And I love that you and uh, Autumn read, you know, very widely and, you know, read a lot of, um, books by people of color, but I'm also super excited to work and learn more from Samaya and Jacqueline. I think that's a really cool opportunity. I know she would talk a lot about, uh, you know, being from Australia and some of the conceptions of Australians from the U S and to be honest, I, you know, know that Australia is a country and a continent and, you know, to be honest, haven't read a ton of Australian fiction. So I'm very eager to to learn more from Jacqueline and from Sumaya as well. One of my um, biggest goals is to read uh, more books from authors uh, that are Muslim and as well as reading more from uh, authors from the Middle East. And so I know she has some really awesome recommendations for that. I've been looking at her feed too um, on Instagram for those titles as well. And um, some of my personal goals that I've had for 2019, I think will, you know, be directly, hopefully achieved uh, by using Jacqueline and Samaya's resources. So I'm super excited to just be part of the team and 
hopefully contributing to to people's TBRs. I always say on, on my book, or I always tell myself in my book reviews, if I can get at least one person to add this book that I love to their TBR, I feel like it's a success. So hopefully I can add some books to some people's lists. I feel like that's a great bar to measure with. Yeah. Well, thank you to all of you for coming on to the podcast and introducing yourselves. We loved learning about your reading interests, and we are looking forward to a great year ahead for the reading women, and we will talk to you all very soon. See ya. Bye. So today on the podcast, we've talked about some of the transitions for 2019, and we've introduced you all to our new contributors. Now, something else special that happened uh, in the last month is that we had a winter intern, Akira McConnell, and she is a college student at the moment. And so she came on to help us out with a lot of the preparation for this season of Reading Women. Yes, Kira has been such a big help for this upcoming season. Bikira's big project was working on this segment for you all about sense and sensibility. And I didn't really know what to expect when she pitched it to me, but I've been really impressed with her work ethic and her attention to detail. And I personally will never think about sense and sensibility without thinking of Frozen ever again. But without (laughs) further ado, here is her discussion of sense and sensibility. Hello, Reading Women listeners near and far. My name is Kira McConnell, and I am interning for Reading Women this month. Welcome to my segment, which Kendra and Autumn so graciously made time for in this crazy start to a new year. Okay, raise your hand if you've ever heard of Jane Austen. I can't see you, but I'm sensing a lot of theoretical hands up in the air. That's right, today we're going to be talking about Jane Austen. And wait, before you ask, isn't Austen, like, the most talked about classic female author? Why, yes, persistent reader, she is. But maybe that's why we should pay attention to her. And hopefully, in these next 20 minutes or so, I can disabuse some of our preconceived notions about Austen, and even in the ways we read books in general. Without further ado, this is Approaches to Austen. I'm a college student, and this past fall, I took a seminar called Jane Austen Then and Now. And I'm sure if you've ever majored in English, you might recall taking a class of a similar nature. But in case you didn't major in English, or have somehow let Austen slip through the cracks of your active reading life, I'll give you the lowdown. Jane Austen was a British author in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, and she's known to scholars as one of the greatest novelists of all time, giving new life to the novel genre as we know it today, not only in her six major books, but also in her juvenilia, letters, and unfinished works. The course I took basically did what its title suggests. We explored her work in its 18th and 19th century contexts, but also took a look at some contemporary adaptations of Austen novels and the sort of cult following we've come to know today. The course, in part, took on a sort of crash course frame because we fit in all six of her major novels into a little over three months. So our lives were just consumed by this world of Regency England. And honestly, I think we reached the point of near worshipping Austen because her work was just the center of our focus almost every day. Now, if you're like me, when you think of Austen, you think of Pride and Prejudice, this quintessential family saga and love story told again and again. But today, I actually want to shift focus onto Austen's first published novel, Sense and Sensibility. And I want to do this because I think Sense and Sensibility is often misunderstood. I've read lots of definitive rankings online and on YouTube putting this one at the bottom of the list, or at least in the lower half. And what people usually say is that it's just a little boring. And I won't lie, reading the first few chapters of this one, I was like, this is not like the others. It starts off with a long descent into the lineage of the Dashwood family through the marriages and deaths of their predecessors, but it eventually becomes an arguably coming-of-age novel that follows two sisters, Eleanor and Marianne Dashwood, as they navigate their incompetent mother being guests in the home of a family friend and, of course, the marriage market. Scholars have argued for decades about the title, Sense and Sensibility. The conclusion we frequently come to is that Eleanor, stoic, and the family mediator, 
always hiding her emotions represents sense. And Marianne, who falls into a rake figure's seductive trap and throws tantrums left and right, represents sensibility. Of course, this is up to debate, but I want to invite you into my liberal arts college student life for a second and backtrack to our last day of Jane Austen class in December. We were tying some loose ends when we got onto the subject of our favorite day of class. And right away, I knew my answer. It was one of our discussions about sense and sensibility back in October. And on that particular day, our professor, an 18th century specialist, had decided to do something a little different. Now, normally our daily discussions started off with her asking us a few general and abstract questions and the 14 of us flipping through our books and finding passages from the novel that interested us to dissect and attempt to answer those questions. Now, as thrilling as that sounds, it certainly is the work college students should be doing in their writing intensive seminars. But that day, she told us to open our notebooks and free write for 10 minutes without taking our pencils off the paper. And the question we would be answering was, are you more of a Marianne or an Eleanor? Now, I remember being so shocked to hear her ask this question, which in a college classroom sounds a little elementary. But I have my notebook right here in front of me, and let me tell you, it was not elementary. Now, I'm going to read you a little bit of what I wrote here. I think I am Eleanor around my family and more intimate relations because of when she talks about not wanting her family members to overreact to the things she is concerned about. When it comes to dreaming and loving first, I do that much like Eleanor too, because I try not to make it public, like wanting a part in a play. I am much more like Marianne when I read books, like trying to cry at the end even if I don't find it sad, just to have a more sentimental attachment to the work. However, I am very much connected to Eleanor over this, just being the older sister. End quote. Well, step aside, Virginia Woolf, the new stream of consciousness queen has arrived. In all seriousness, though, this exercise reminded me very much of how average book clubs talk about books. I mean, just from experience, so much of that discussion stems from choosing the characters we like and seeing ourselves in them, even if we aren't in a similar boat ourselves. I know I'm not in the process of navigating the marriage market right now, but Eleanor's qualities resonated so much with me that I was able to draw a connection between my life and hers. And isn't that why we read? To be able to connect with people we don't know so that maybe we can better understand those we do, like ourselves? After the discussion, our class decided that you can't really be one or the other. The truth is, there's a little sense and sensibility in all of us, and this discovery came from a reading for personalization. What I want to try and debunk for us today is that no man's land space between personalization and eye-perspective reading, think your average book club, and intense literary analysis, think college seminar classroom. The phrase close reading sounds intimidating and scholarly on the surface, but in reality, I don't think I would have been able to connect with Eleanor and Marianne like I did had I not been close reading to begin with. That's why I've chosen a passage to close read with you all today. So if you aren't familiar with the term close reading, it's basically the process that literary critics go through to make convincing arguments about a text and craft a unique piece of criticism to add to a previous discourse. And it involves looking at select pieces of the text, whether that be a paragraph, a few sentences, or even just a phrase, and using that piece to answer a question they have about the text. Now, I'm going to repeat the words of one Claudia Johnson, a literary critic and editor who teaches at Princeton, and declared in a public lecture, Jane Austen is hard. She is so right. And it's funny because we often think of Austen as being so popular because she's easy. Oh, she's so easy and basic, she appeals to everyone, reading her is like reading mindless chick lit. But in fact, what close reading does for us is show us that Jane Austen is hard, but it also shows us that she is so worth reading. And there's a big difference between being hard and being impenetrable. As you can imagine, millions of words have been written about Austen's works using close reading. But the good news is, you can hardly ever be wrong, as long as what you select from the text actually interests you and allows you to make a new discovery. I have some other good news for you. Close reading isn't just for well-established literary critics and college English majors. It's for all of us, 
whether we're in bed, catching up on the books we slept through in high school, discussing a new romance novel over wine or not wine if you're under 21 like me, or even driving to work listening to an audiobook. Yes, you can close read in your head. It's not a piece of cake, but hopefully I can convince you that close reading and personalization aren't as far apart as we think they are. Let's try it. The question we're asking here is, what about Eleanor and Marianne's relationship makes it so that we can't have one without the other? We can't have the sense without the sensibility. As much as I'd love to discuss the ending of the novel, which follows a similar trajectory as her five other novels, I won't spoil anything for those who may not yet be acquainted with the Austinian courtship plot. After deciding this and planning my close read, however, I realized that the text is bursting at the binding with little moments between Eleanor and Marianne that perfectly showcase their dynamic. And that's one of the things that's so great about Austin's prose is that even the sentences that seem wasteful can actually tell us something really important about the characters. Take this opener to volume one, chapter 12. As Eleanor and Marianne were walking together the next morning, the latter communicated a piece of news to her sister, which in spite of all that she knew before of Marianne's imprudence and want of thought, surprised her by its extravagant testimony of both. Marianne told her, with the greatest delight, that Willoughby had given her a horse. End quote. If that isn't the most roundabout way of saying that one sister bragged to the other about her brand new horse, I don't know what is. Now, I'm assuming there's probably a few of you who aren't following along with your Norton Critical Editions, but couldn't you just hear the circumlocution in that? I mean, it starts off pretty typical. Eleanor and Marianne are walking together in the morning. Okay, got it. Two sisters out for a stroll. But then she throws in the whole ladder thing, and I don't know about you all, but I have to go back in my head and remember which sister was listed second, because that's what ladder means. In this case, it's Marianne. So we know Marianne is telling Eleanor what the narrator calls a piece of news, that her man bought her a horse. Is it news because Marianne thinks it is? Or will Eleanor be thankful that her sister alerts her of this recent purchase? We find out a second later that Eleanor has some internal reservations about Marianne, like that she has imprudence and want of thought. Sure, getting a horse today might seem great, but back then, owning an animal was actually a huge economic burden. I mean, Willoughby didn't even check with Marianne's mom first if she'd be okay with a new member of the Dashwood family. Eleanor sees right through this, but Marianne is likely blinded by idealistic visions of galloping on the hillside with her sweet new ride. But wait, the narrator tells us that Eleanor is surprised by the news. When we realize this, we see that Eleanor does not immediately assume that Marianne is going to act immaturely, even though she already knows Marianne has the tendency to be overly romantic and idealistic. Instead, Marianne's news is described as a testimony to her bad habits of not thinking things through first. To me, the word testimony strikes up visions of a courtroom. It's almost as if Eleanor's mind works like a very fair judicial system, where every interaction with Marianne is a case. Marianne, each time she behaves a certain way, is testifying to either her good qualities or her bad habits and Eleanor approaches their every interaction from an unbiased place, and we can tell that she gives Marianne the benefit of the doubt. Marianne, on the other hand, comes from a place of assumption that Eleanor is going to be interested in whatever she has to say, or that she'll at least be willing to listen as she delivers her news with the greatest delight. There's definitely a lot going on in this moment, but I think the biggest thing to notice is the impersonal nature of the narrator's descriptions. Why use phrases like the latter, her sister, and throw in the pronouns her and its every other word? When we listen to this passage, it sounds really choppy. There's a lot of words stuffed in between commas. That much we can tell from just listening to an audiobook in the car. When we close read the situation, though, we start thinking about how this impersonal route might represent Eleanor and Marianne's relationship. And that was what our question was, right? So maybe all these pronouns and filler words are the clashing of sense with sensibility. Don't we sometimes want to be given a pet horse just because? The idea of riding off on horseback sounds pretty appealing to me. And do we really come into every conversation completely unbiased, especially with those we hold closest, like a sister? But then again, 
Don't we also want to be the one that sees through the selfish schemes of men like Willoughby, the one who can use reason and logic to escape imprudence and want of thought? I think this is a problem that women especially find themselves in, wanting to be two different things at once to please themselves and protect others around them. Austin has given us here, in this two-sentence chapter opener, a window into the complicated, messy interior lives of these two female characters. And that's what makes them inseparable. We can't have one without the other, because then those online definitive rankers would be right, and Sense and Sensibility would be the boring book. But because the sisters complement each other and create this cacophony of words and punctuation even on an innocent morning walk, they become realistic representations of us. That's when we start to see our own lives come alive on the page. And remember that this scene is towards the very beginning of the book. The Dashwood sisters have so much room to grow after this description. So imagine what they'll go through to reach a point of mutual understanding and acknowledgement of their differences. And spoiler alert, they go a very long way. A huge part of why I chose to talk about Sense and Sensibility today, and not Pride and Prejudice or Emma, is because the story is so much more than just a heroine finding love, marrying against odds, and ascending economically. In Sense and Sensibility, we don't even have a definitive heroine. Is it Eleanor or Marianne? I argue it's both, and the object of their deepest affections and pursuits are not the men they marry, but rather each other, and finding solace and truth in their sisterhood. And this is where you can call me crazy, but I'm pretty sure Sense and Sensibility was the first Frozen. I mean, think about it. Is Anna or Elsa the heroine? And is the story really about overcoming Hans the rake figure or getting with Kristoff and his reindeer? No. We're all just waiting for that hug between sisters at the end to thaw Elsa's frozen heart. And for the first time in Disney history, the true love's kiss becomes the true love's sis. We can draw some valuable feminist lessons from these two sisterly tales, mainly that when strong women work together to become stronger, we as their readers and viewers feel inspired to do the same. Maybe I'm reading into this a little too much, and maybe it's time to sign off but I hope I've at least scratched the surface to bridging the gap between the traditionally separate universes of pleasure reading and academic reading. And perhaps I've recruited a couple Austinites to join the club, so keep reading on and search for opportunities to close-read passages by or about women, because you never know what you'll find. I want to quickly thank my professor, Laura Boudot, for being my first guide through Austin's work and helping me get my ideas and gear for this podcast. And of course, thank you again to Kendra and Autumn for giving me the time to share my thoughts today and for the opportunity to work with reading women this month. Signing off, Jane Austen. Just kidding, Kira McConnell. We'd like to thank Kira for being our intern this month and also writing and recording that segment. She did such a great job. Uh, and that's that's our show. So many thanks to The Great Courses Plus for sponsoring this episode of Reading Women. And also many thanks to our patrons whose support make this podcast possible. If you haven't yet, please leave us a review in your podcast app of choice. And thanks to all of you who have already left us a review. Make sure you check out our newsletter where we have book reviews, new books, and so much more. To subscribe to our newsletter or to learn about becoming one of our patrons, visit us at readingwomenpodcast.com. And be sure to join us next time where Kendra and Sachi will be talking about our February theme, romance and love stories. You don't want to miss that. And in the meantime, you can find Reading Women on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at Katie Winchester and me on Instagram at Autumn Privet. Thank you all so much for listening to Reading Women and we'll talk to you soon. Storybound is a podcast where acclaimed writers read their essays and stories, which are then scored by unique and award-winning composers, with each episode hosted by myself, Jude Brewer. With Storybound, you'll find a whole array of genres and musical styles, some painful yet sweet, or hilarious yet tragic, all brought to you by the podglomerate 
and Lit Hub Radio. Hi, I'm Sopanda. Hi, I'm Megan Angelo. This is Tommy Orange. This is Amanda Stern. This is Phil Cly. Hello, this is Stephanie Dandler. My name is Chloe Caldwell, and you're listening to Storybound. Storybound. This is Storybound. 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 This is the Storybound Podcast. Season two will be arriving on July 14th with new episodes every Tuesday, featuring writers like Stephanie Dandler, Garth Greenwell, Tommy Orange, Chloe Caldwell, and more. Make sure to subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And tell a friend, because the next best thing to hearing a great story is having someone to share it with.